One theologian called God the three-mile-per-hour God. Um, and the reason for that is because three miles per hour is the speed of walking. And as we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit um, is a list that maybe you've heard of or maybe you've really focused on trying to have or display in your life, but it actually all comes from walking with God, right? Walking in the Spirit is the way that it's said. So today, we're going to talk about how to walk in the Spirit. First of all, I just want to give you a quick definition of walking in the Spirit. This is a life completely and continuously under the control and direction of the Holy Spirit. A life completely and continuously under the control and direction of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever pursued a goal um, for your body, such as maybe being able to dunk? That was me in high school. I will, I will say I did not meet that goal. <laughs> Uh, I thought I was going to, I don't know. It just, I, it didn't pan out. Um, uh, another one was I, I had a friend who, somewhat of a friend, uh, whenever we were in computer class, he, uh, I don't know what I was doing, but in some way it had revealed my stomach. And, and he said, you got a little bit of a gut. You're going you're gonna to have a gut like your dad whenever you get older. I was like, all right, well, thanks. And from that point forward, it was, I was like, man, I'm, I'm going to have a six-pack. It's going to happen. Um, and I was, I was willing to like put in the work, right? I was going to work out for it. I was already doing basketball, which was already a ton of work. But I was, I was going to put in the work even before basketball to be able to do the crunches or whatever. I didn't really know much, nor did I research things. Um, and it just never happened. And the big reason is that I never really saw a connection between like what I ate and like being able to cut weight, right? So I would go to practice and I'd work out and then I'd go home and eat pizza rolls and drink Mountain Dew. And I was just like, I, I didn't see those as like antithetical. That's just the way that I, I thought it was gonna happen. Like I could just eat whatever I wanted, but as long as I work hard, I'm gonna be able to do this. And I was never able to. I wanted the end result, but I was ignorant of. And even if I, maybe knew how to get there, probably unwilling to, to change um, my ways in order to get that result. And similarly, whenever we look at the list of attributes that we call the fruit of the Spirit, um, I would almost guarantee that every person in here would love for this to be a, a description of themselves. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, but we can't be simply aware of the end goal and work for it. We have to know how to get there and pursue that route. So how can we pursue the fruit of the Spirit? How can we walk in the Spirit and so become people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Oddly enough, the fruit of the Spirit is not actually uh, gained by focusing on the fruit of the Spirit, right? So you don't become a person who shows these fruit because you're chasing after becoming a person of love or of joy or of peace. None of these things can be the thing that we put in our eyes as the end goal. Instead, what we have to focus on is the spirit, right? The fruit of the spirit is not focused on the fruit, but focused on the spirit. 
So the question for us is, how can we be rooted in the Spirit's life-giving presence and power? How can we be pruned and cultivated to be able to bear His fruit? This is difficult to know because when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about a person, yes, but not a human, right? This isn't like walking with your buddy that you walk with at the gym or in the mall or something like that. And like, oh, we're, let's go for a walk. Um, it's, it doesn't quite feel the same way because the Holy Spirit's not a human that we can physically do these things with. The Bible speaks of them in physical terms occasionally as fire or as um, a dove even. But more often his presence is actually felt and experienced more than it's seen. And we're told that the fruit of the Spirit is the result of walking in the Spirit, not by the Spirit or with the Spirit. So how do we walk in someone who is unseen? It's only by receiving the grace of God shown in Christ that we can walk in God's personal presence given through the Spirit. We're going to be in Galatians 5, verse 16 today. In this region of Galatia, there were Bible teachers coming through and saying, well, if you're a follower of Jesus, then there are some very clear signs. Like, we, we know what you should be, and that's going to be a person who practices the Jewish law. Specifically, you're going to practice the rites of circumcision, you're going to keep the festivals and the Sabbath. You're, not, you're going to eat kosher, no pork, uh, fish without scales are off the menu, keep the laws. These leaders were saying that a true Christian keeps the law and proves themselves worthy of Jesus. But Paul says, no, you've actually got it backwards. It's not by doing the right things, but by a firm confidence in God's work that your life changes. Paul says that it's not the actions of a person, but a change at the deepest level of who someone is uh, that in turn bubbles up into the surface in recognizable ways. And it doesn't look like the de default version of humanity, but instead it looks like a completely changed and new life. Walking in the spirit produces a change in desires, not just different actions. So let's, with that in mind, look at Galatians 5, 16 through 25. It says this, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as it was told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk 
in the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Let's pray. Father, we are so desperate um, for, for new life. Uh, but Lord, we know that just being a good person really doesn't solve anything, and we can't aim at that. Lord, I, I pray that you would teach us how we can walk in your spirit, to live continually, continuously in your presence and under your control, because we know that's, that's what's best for us. It's how you've intended us to live. It's what you created us for. Lord, please teach us how to this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So there are two realities of walking with the Spirit, right, um, and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. First of all, there's an inner reality, and then there's an outer reality, so pretty simple. Um, firstly, there's an inner reality. The Spirit uh, fills people. So Spirit-filled people are not just ethical or well-behaved, but they are new. There's a complete inward change. In some school systems, uh, there's a huge emphasis on rewards, positive rewards for behaviors. And other school systems, like the one that I grew up in, I don't know if these exist as much anymore, but the old way of doing things was that you just punished bad behavior, right? So I grew up in a school where there were still spankings. Um, and there, the chief way that like, discipline was done and how you got the right behaviors was by negative repercussions. So you're talking to your buddy in class, your name is written on the board. That same thing happens, or you throw something at someone, what are you, you're gonna get a mark. And once you get so far, you're going to the principal's office. And if you were doing the right thing in that class, you know, good job. That's, you, you're not gonna get told good job, you just, you were doing the right thing, that's what you should do. Just act like a normal student and do the right thing, don't do the wrong thing, okay? So that's the old classroom. Today, a lot of classrooms are set up more in a positive reward system. So instead of saying, we're gonna put Jeremiah's name on the board because he wasn't doing the right thing, we're gonna see Jeremiah, who's not reading, while all the rest of his class is reading, and we're gonna say, Here's a piece of candy for you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and not Jeremiah, and you, and you, and you skip over that person, right? They don't get the reward that everybody else got. So you're not directly dealing with the bad behavior. You're just going to positively reinforce the good behaviors, all right? But both of these systems are kind of uh, predicated on the idea that the extrinsic rewards or extrinsic uh, negative repercussions of your actions, things outside of you that happen to you, are going to motivate those inner rewards, or that, that inner sense of doing the right thing, right? So whether it's you're, you're getting spanked because you've done the wrong thing, or you get a piece of candy for doing the right thing, it's outside and that's gonna motivate you to be a good person, all right? And where this is like flawed is, uh, you know, you can, you can motivate a kid to do really well on a test because you said you get an A, you get pizza. But what if on the next test you don't offer that reward, then there's no, no motivation for like doing well on that test, right? And that's kind of the conundrum that teachers face today is like, well, do I just buy a pizza for every test or do I, is there something deeper that needs to change? 
Um, and whenever we talk about the work of the Spirit, we're not talking about a behavior modification, right? With the extrinsic motivators. Christianity is not about doing good things, like producing good actions, making people who behave, right? I'm not up here giving a, a motivational speech that hopefully rallies all of you guys to treat other people with kindness. That's not the goal of the Christian faith. It's also not do good things because the result is you'll go to heaven. Like you'll be able to partake in God's grace if you start being a good person and stop being a bad person. No, the person walking in the Spirit and led by the Spirit, um, living in the Spirit, is a person whose actions are the result of another's direction from inside. This is not the result of great decision-making, of discipline, or even of good morality. This is a result of the Spirit's fundamentally replacing cold, dead, stony hearts with hearts for him and in him. This is a people transformed from inside that manifests on the outside. In Jeremiah 31, 33, it says that the Lord said, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, all this time, the people of God had received God's ways. They knew exactly what God wanted from them, but they kept failing time and time again. And God said, there's going to come a time whenever no longer do you have to keep, the, it no longer will I just give you this list of things that are the way to live righteously. But instead, it's going to be right, written on your very heart that your actual desires and what you want in this life will be changed because I will put my very personal presence in you. You're, like, you're not going to have to guess at it. It's going to change from within. It's not going to be like positive rewards and negative rewards. It's going to be inside of you. You will be motivated to do the right thing and you will know what the right thing is. Uh, in the film, a man called Otto, uh, there's a man and his name is Otto, and he's a cranky old man uh, who treats everybody with contempt, just absolute hatred. The person bringing the mail, the person driving down the road, the person with the dog, like just cranky. Like, uh, maybe you've met someone like this. Maybe you had a family get together with someone who's like this, right? Just cranky all the time. And you, you find out in the movie that he, he's mean for a reason. Like, he's, he's faced some pretty hard circumstances in life. Um, and then his, his wife has recently died, and he just doesn't see a whole lot of point in life anymore. And so he's, he has completely set his, set his course towards killing himself. But in, in the course of the movie, these neighbors move in across the street and they keep needing his help. And they keep showing him love in like just ways that he completely doesn't deserve. He acts like a complete tool. And then they, in return, like make him dinner. You know? And they just they love him super well. Um, and spoiler alert, Otto is so moved by this love that one, it just keeps him from killing himself. But then two, it actually changes him. This love that he experiences from his neighbor begins to break down the, the stony heart that he has developed over these years of callousness. And now he becomes a person of love 
who's looking for ways to be a blessing to other people, trying to help others, showing the love that he has been shown. He becomes generous and thoughtful and sacrificial um, towards all the people he had once hated. And uh, it wasn't because someone was like, Otto, come on, you got to do the right thing. Otto, you're, you're a cranky old man and no one likes you. Maybe you should be loving. And he was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll just love people. No, like he didn't need to know the right thing. What did he knew, need? He needed to experience the love and grace, right, of someone else. And whenever he experienced that, it changed him from the inside out. The reason this story is so beautiful is because it echoes the love of Christ. It breaks down the walls of our stubborn hearts. The spirits inhabiting a person is not won by our doing good. It's not the result of hearing the right things, but it's, it's the result of a change from inside, a change of God's grace and of his love penetrating our souls and totally transforming us, bringing us from death to life. The Father's love given through Jesus breaks into our hearts by the Holy Spirit's work. And the change in our actions is the fruit of that change. We don't change anything. But God, whenever we taste of his grace, whenever we experience his love within our hearts, he changes what we want. He changes who we are. And only then will our actions change. It doesn't come by pursuing doing the right thing or knowing doing the right thing. It happens by experiencing his grace and his love. So the second thing that is, is a part of walking in the spirit, it's, not, it's, it's an inner reality, but then it also manifests outwardly. It's an outward reality. Walking in the spirit results in actions that show his heart. Um, John Newton grew up in the heyday of the British Empire. And his father ran a trading charter in the Mediterranean. As a child, he had gone around the Mediterranean six times. That's just a different type of childhood. You know what I mean? Like he, he was just always on the move. And he's a child growing up with sailors. Like this is a rough and ready childhood, you know? Like he, he lived a pretty hard life by the time he was ready to make his own decisions. And so whenever he begins to make his own decisions, he makes bad ones. Um, he joins the Navy, but then he tries to flee and is, um, he, he faces some really bad repercussions. It just shoots his career opportunities. He ends up working as an indentured servant for a time. And finally he gets on a ship to go back to England and try to like, after working for three years to kind of like get himself out of the hole that he had dug. Um, he goes, he's trying to go back to England. And as he's on the way back, there's a storm, and it seems clear that he's not going to make it. Um, and he prays. And as he's praying, this cargo, like, just goes in the place of the hole that had been developed in the ship. And it, it fills it enough to where they're able to float safely to shore. And he sees this as a sign of God's providence, and he recognizes who God is, and he begins to read about who God is in the Bible. But at the same time, he's, he needs work, and he doesn't have a lot of options as a coward who's fled the army. Um, and so he ends up on a, a slave trading charter in the Atlantic, right? And he's trading slaves. He's also kidnapping, like taking these slaves from Africa, and he's taking them to 
America. And he's made several of these trips, and he does this for six years. And all the while, there's, he recognizes the, that this is not showing grace and love. Like, this is completely antithetical to who I am if I believe that God has saved me by his grace. And he, he finally makes the decision. God, I, I give it all to you. I'm, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. And he quits working on the ship, and he goes and he takes a job, and he begins to study at night to be a pastor. And he becomes a pastor. And later, influences, uh, like mentors, pastors, um, William Wilberforce, who puts an end to the slave trade altogether. And this is not the result of John Newton being a really good guy, right? He was a scoundrel. I mean, he deserted his country. He, he did underhanded things. He was a part of the slave trade, like some really bad stuff. There was no virtue in John Newton, and he knew that, right? And that's why he penned these words in Amazing Grace. He said, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. John Newton's life was forever altered, and it wasn't because he learned the right things to do. It wasn't because he wanted to become a good person. It was because he had a radical encounter with the grace of Jesus. And as he was walking in the Spirit through the Word, it transformed him from the inside out and made him into a completely different person. Someone who recognized, like, I cannot take part in the slave trade and call myself someone who is partaking in the love of Christ. Right? It's totally antithetical to who I am. It changed his desires from the inside out. Our lives are not the result of our circumstances. Or what I recently heard called, and I love this term, uh, just a sense of thrownness, like you've just been thrown into your situation, right? Your circumstances, you couldn't help. Like there, there's a number, there's so many parts of each of our lives we had absolutely no control over, right? There's a sense of thrownness to each of us. But our lives are not the result of our thrownness, of our just being um, thrown into a situation. Whenever we think about our life in the Spirit, if we've been filled with the Spirit, there's no set of circumstances that you have encountered that have forced you into sin, right? There's no set of cir circumstances that you encounter that are, that are so powerful, that they're more powerful than the, than the one who fills you. If you are in the Spirit, then you have overcome this world, right? You, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Your actions are not the result of your circumstances. They don't have to be. No more can we say, well, I can't help it. I was just brought up this way. Well, it's just the way my fam family handles this sort of thing. Like, I, I just don't know how I could do anything else. Or, even worse, well, that's just the way I am, right? We can't say that sort of thing whenever we're, we're in the Spirit. We, we, can't, we can't say something like, you know, someone confronts us at 
something like Thanksgiving. Well, you really shouldn't have talked to your aunt that way. They're like, well, did you hear what she said to me? Right? As if she has forced you into being ugly or she has forced you into being hateful. If we're filled with the Spirit, if we're walking in the Spirit, then there's a new reality. There's a new desire that's more powerful than our outward circumstances. God has changed us from the inside out, and he's with us in a powerful way as we walk in the Spirit. All of this and more comes down to one thing for Paul. All of these things that we are naturally prone to, they're the works of the flesh. And that's weird language, because it's just like flesh is just like meat or whatever. Uh, the work of uh, this stuff that's hanging off of our bodies. All right, what are we talking about? We're talking about the, the default settings of humanity, right? Factory settings, how do we come out of the womb? What are we thinking? What are our motivations? And what do those actions actually result in? It's not a pretty list. If we look here in Galatians 5, right? Um, he says that we, we by, by the flesh, by our, our natural inclinations, we commit adultery, we fornicate, we're unclean, we're lewd, we worship idols, we practice sorcery, we hate other people, we're contentious, we, we fight. Um, we, we hate others for legitimate and illegitimate reasons. We envy others, pe other people's place in life. Sometimes we even commit murder. We burst out in anger. We get drunk. And just for good measure, Paul ends the list. Not to say this is conclusive. These are the only things. But he says, and the like, right? <laughs> you know, all that stuff. That's all the factory settings of humanity. This is how we naturally work. This is not a person who's experienced the love of God, right? Whenever these things are evident in our lives, it's a clear sign that we're not partaking in his love. We're not walking in the spirit. You see, the, the Jewish leaders at this time, they were saying, like, the way that you know if someone's a Christian is if they do the right things, they are circumcised, they get circumcised, they practice the law, they practice kosher eating. And Paul says that's not it. It's about the grace of God. But then the question is, how do we know who's actually a Christian if this is about the grace of God? Because that means it's not about works. It's not about the things that they do. And well, the first list he gives is actually, well, here are some things that are going to show that someone hasn't had the grace of God change them from the inside out. And here are some attitudes and some dispositions that show that there has been this change, that they have taken, tasted of the grace of God. So on the other hand, the fruit of the Spirit's work are not specific action, but just a new way of existing in the world, guiding like ethical principles that change the specifics of what we do. Paul doesn't offer a list of like specifics, right? He doesn't say, feed the hungry, and then, you know, treat your, your neighbors with respect, love those who hate you. He doesn't give the specifics. Instead, he gives, these, gives us these guiding principles of what will result from the Spirit's work. And you want to notice one thing in this passage, and that's not that this is a grab bag of things that maybe you show, right? This is actually not the fruits 
plural, of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. There's one fruit. And what is that one fruit? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of this. One fruit. Right? What does it look like for you to have the Holy Spirit in you? To be walking in the Spirit? It looks like all of these things. It looks like a person who is showing all of these things. These are primary motivations for why we do what we do. This is not to say that we're going to perfectly display each of these, but that in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, we are now trees that yield these fruit supernaturally. It is the new default mode. Somewhat to Cherish's dismay, I am just enamored with the idea of like growing my own food. Um, I would love to have chickens. It's just not in the cards right now. But uh, fruit trees, that's kind of like where we've settled. That's, that's what I can get by with right now. So I've planted a number of fruit trees. Um, and just this past spring, I now have, I think I have six all together now. But in the spring, I planted two apple trees. And I was, I was pretty stoked about these apple trees. I, uh, I don't know if you've, seen, like I'm trying to do like the or, organic gardening thing. And I bought like the little socks that aren't really socks that you use to try on shoes at the store. You know what I'm talking about? It's like real thin. Um, and so like an organic way to fight pests is you buy those little socks and you just tie them onto your apples. And then the apple can expand, but the, the insects can't get to it. So I bought all these like socks, right? I'm, I'm eagerly expecting that I'm going to have tons of fruit. And it's spring. Things are beginning to bloom. I see all the, the flowers on my apple tree. And, you know, they had just started to form. I mean, really, really small. Like the flowers had just recently fallen off. And I'm like, yeah, pretty soon I'm going to have to break out the socks for these, uh, these fruit, right? Um, and I go out to look one day, and whenever the fruit were smaller than a dime, really, really small, and the ends of every single branch had been bitten off, every single one. They didn't leave one. <laughs> That's not true. They left one. I put a sock on that, and then that one got bit off too. So, <laughs> um, yeah, they just ate all of it. Like, it, it's an apple tree. It's supposed to produce apples, and it did, right? Uh, but then the deer... I, I imagine, I never saw, like a thief in the night, it came. Um, and these, this deer just, it just took everything, right? Um, an apple tree can't do anything but produce apples. It's just what it is, right? It's just what it's, it's engineered for, by God. Um, whenever you grow an apple tree, you don't expect anything else. You're not wondering if it's going to be acorns this year. Um, Whenever we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, saying that you are a, you bear the Spirit's fruit. You are all Spirit fruit trees, if you will. And each of you has one, like, this is the one result that should happen. Like, if, if you are tasting of God's goodness, of His grace, and by walking in the Spirit, then the result is going to be the, this fruit. It looks like this. But just like my fruit trees, there are sometimes uh, ways that it doesn't yield that fruit, right? Whether 
because of something outside, maybe a fungus that the tree has. I had to take a couple, take one back this year because of a, a mildew that had formed on my tree. Um, these trees naturally produce fruit, but sometimes there are, there are things that stop the production of the fruit. The Spirit's work is natural, but it's not inevitable. We can let the fruit be choked out by the cares of this world. We can let it be choked out by the pushback we receive, and we can let it be choked out by the impulse that we have towards our default settings, right? Remember, we're not letting those desires be changed. However, it should not be a toss-up whenever we face a situation in which it could, we could easily fly off the, off the handle, right, in anger. Like, are they going to show patience or are they going to cuss that person out? Like, hopefully that's not the question for those who are spirit trees, right? Spirit fruit trees. Because that's the sort of tree you are. Your life and your power is not ground in human initiative, in human desires, but by God's grace and spirit. But what if you don't bear this fruit? What if that person in your family passively, aggressively tells you that you're a bad parent? Or, that you're, or what about whenever your child rolls their eyes at you, indicating that you're a clueless idiot? Or you do something thoughtful for someone and they never thank you. Or worse yet, critique the thing that you did, right? What if you get in this spot as you feel, uh, in the spot where you feel that old way, what Paul calls the old man, the old ways, whenever you feel that welling up within you and you're ready to let, let them have it? Is this cause for concern? Yes, absolutely. Like that's hopefully, like that is not our impulse every single time, but we also recognize that we're in the already not yet right? We are already right now experiencing the joy and fulfillment and satisfaction of God and that that's transforming us from the inside out. But at the same time, we're not quite there. We live in a world full of sin and of brokenness and that there are times whenever we're going to give in. But we are not bound to giving in. But by the Spirit's power, we know that the war is won. There is peace and wholeness here today. We know that we will be glorified in the presence of the Father. But until that way, we wage a war against the flesh. We take up our cross daily. We kill it. We crucify the desires that we were naturally born with and recognize that this is not the way we were designed to live. This is not the way of the Spirit. And when we give in, the Spirit leads us into reconciliation. Into reconciliation motivated by love, led into, into humility, and spurred on by the Spirit. Because we're not going to always bear that fruit. But the difference between someone who just does the right thing or does the wrong thing is that inwardly, there's a change in our desires. And that's going to result in you, you messing up, absolutely. But it's also going to lead to your recognition that I messed up. That was not in step with the Spirit. Like, I'm not 
I did not make that decision as I was drinking from the wells of his grace and his his love, and then I did that thing, that was not me. Like, that's not who God has created me to be, and we're going to, in the spirit, go to that person, and we're going to apologize. We're going to humble ourselves, and we're going to recognize, like, that was not right. I mistreated you. I said the wrong thing. That was insensitive. I hurt you. And I was walking in the flesh. And that is not what I want to do. I'm sorry. The Spirit leads us into reconciliation whenever we don't bear the fruit of His Spirit. The Spirit-filled life is not a life free of sin, but one filled with Christ and motivated at the deepest level, not by need for acceptance, not by the desire to be known, not for the longing of good circumstances and comfortable living, not motivated by good self-image, but instead motivated by him. His love, his glory, and his ways, they become ours. And when they're not our ways, we make it right, even at the expense of comfort. The truth is that the fruit of the Spirit are most necessary when they're least convenient. The fruit of the Spirit are most necessary when they're least convenient. When you're loved, it's supernatural for you to show love. Like, anybody can do that, right? Uh, A friend invites you over for dinner, and then you want to invite that person over for dinner. That totally makes sense. That's just the way that it works. Like, that's a natural feeling of love. But what about whenever we aren't invited to dinner, and we're the ones who were left out? What about whenever we don't experience that love? And we're called to a genuine desire for their good. We love our enemies. It's easy to have joy whenever it's Christmas Day. It's hard when it's the anniversary of loss. It's easy to feel at peace when you're on vacation and you're not going to work for six more days. But it's hard during a work week with several events going on in the evening to recognize that the shalom, the peace of God is with you. That his spirit is with you. We don't get to choose the time and place of this fruit because it's supplied and emerges from these weary bodies through not our power, not our strength or our discipline, but by the Holy Spirit's indwelling. We walk with the Spirit, and He produces these fruit. Brothers and sisters of Faith Church, may we daily take, uh, surrender our, need, our desires to God, and by His grace, walk in the Spirit and produce His fruit. May we drink deeply from the well of His grace. May we be satisfied in His love, And may our lives reflect the deep satisfaction that he alone gives. May we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit as we drink from the well of his grace. I want to close with a prayer from John Stott. Um, John Stott was an English preacher. Um, He never married. And within the Church of England, he was just well known for being probably the most genuine guy that people knew. I mean, he was an excellent writer. He He was an excellent preacher but he was so genuine in his love. And in his uh, biography, he said that this is, this is what he prayed on a daily basis. This is the prayer that he prayed. 
He prayed for the cultivation of the fruit of the Spirit. He said, glory to the Father. And we're, we're going to close our eyes and pray, pray this prayer together. But glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, three persons and one God, have mercy upon me. Amen.